0: Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle. Today I'm joined by my co-host Luke Bartholomew. There's a lot going on in global macro and markets right now and we're very lucky to have on the pod with us today Eddie Donmez. He's a market analyst, content creator, a finance influencer at Finomize. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a finance influencer, the role he plays in the financial ecosystem, how information and research makes its way to retail investors, the themes and views among the retail investor community at the moment, and of course, what's going on in markets right now with Silicon Valley Bank. So a lot on the docket. Eddie, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Great to be here. So I want to start, Eddie, then by talking about your role as a finance influencer i mean what does what does this job mean um tell us how how you got into it what what your role in the investor ecosystem is
1: yeah i'm still not quite used to that terminology to be honest but i'm I'm slowly coming to grips with it but i think what it means to me is really being a kind of point of contact for the everyday person but also institutional investors and players with my thoughts on the market and to keep everyone updated on the developments that I see and give my kind of take on things. So it really started a couple of years ago because I was working for an education technology company and I was involved in the training of investment bank analysts at Morgan Stanley and Citi and Bank of America for example and I would teach them and sales and trading and market making and portfolio management and the fundamentals of finance really and then on the other side I was also working with with students really to bring up their commercial awareness and give them the insights that I'd learned from my time at S&P to bring them up to what they needed to know to kind of break in into the industry And then I started to write my market commentary on social media uh, and really on, on LinkedIn, which is a really untraditional social media platform. When you think about Instagram and TikTok and Facebook, LinkedIn was such an amazing opportunity that I saw in the early days because what people associate LinkedIn with is delighted to announce I've just joined this company and all this kind of humble bragging and all that stuff. But I looked at the platform and I said, okay, there's all the people that I want to reach with my market commentary and analysis. And they're all here and I can see exactly who they are, what firm they're at, what seniority they are. So although I began writing for students predominantly, it caught the attention really quickly of some industry professionals, which is was strange to me because what I was doing was taking somewhat complex market uh fundamentals me- mechanics analysis and really trying to break it down in a jargon free bite sized way for people to understand and i think that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication is is the way i like to kind of phrase it and if you can break down a really complex topic in a really nice to follow way you can really attract a lot of attention. And it's not only from the entry-level people, but it's also portfolio managers and, you know, CIOs and managing directors who think, okay, well, this guy really understands what this concept is. You know, this is really, really valuable. So it started to gain a bit of momentum and I had, you know, PMs and uh, analysts message me like, oh, can you give me, can you tell me a little bit more about this? Can you give me, what do you think about this? I really enjoyed your post on that. And I was like, okay, well, that's interesting that this level of person, remember, I was was pretty, you know, junior at the time was complimenting me on my work. So I was doing this off and on. Uh, months. And, you know, as you get busy, you know, you tend to kind of move away from the social media side, um, but kept it somewhat consistent. But really, it was at the start of last year, I was in a pretty remote location in Eastern Europe. And that's a story for another day. But I wrote wrote a post that went viral, if you like, uh, got, you know, loads of engagement. And I said to myself, okay, well, (laughs) if I can be in Eastern Europe and write this post and it to get as much traction as it did, I need to take this seriously now. So at the start of last year, kind of Christmas New Year's time, I said, look, I'm going to be super consistent and start putting this out on a kind of daily basis and I really got a, a lot of kind of traction last year and now I'm sitting at around 140,000 followers on LinkedIn which is, you know, surpassed my wildest expectations of course. Um, and attracts, you know, people like yourself that are super senior amazing firms and that's a really powerful thing.
0: Yeah, it's a model of of research distribution about uh, getting your insights out there, which is in many ways a natural evolution of of, of how it should go. But it is is really a big step change beyond that kind of subscription broadcast model that you get from your your economic consultants, from your institutional managers, so, and and a lot of interaction too, right, Eddie? That's per- perhaps a different aspect of it relative to that more traditional broadcast mode of research.
1: Yeah, and we saw it. We can talk about SVB's collapse kind of uh, later on, but it was amazingly evident this weekend where you had such a dominant market theme where, you know, at times it looked pretty precarious of the, you know, regional banking system in, in the US. And what you have is this amazing kind of community almost of the best minds in finance in some capacity, right? You have Heads of wealth management, heads of, you know, investments, all commenting under your post and having a dialogue and, you know, really criticizing each other's views in a constructive way. And I think LinkedIn has this amazing advantage over other social medias that there's a kind of potential reputational damage if you step out of line, right? So it keeps it really safe, constructive, and you you just bring, you know, really great minds from all over the world, all different firms with their different points of view into this almost interchange. And I'm sure you've seen some of my posts where there's fights and God knows what going on in the comments. But most of the time, it's super constructive um, and you learn a huge amount, which I think is a really powerful thing.
2: So Eddie, one of the things that I, I take you to be doing is sort of undermining some of those traditional boundaries that we have in this industry between retail and institutional investors and perhaps jargon has been one of the ways in which that boundary has been policed before and helping to de-jargonize and simplify helps to bring the boundary down in that respect. But I sort of note that over the last few years, perhaps another way in which people have policed this boundary is that there's been a sort of stereotype about a certain kind of retail investor, you know, speculating their stimmy, their stimulus check in meme stocks or whatever else it might be emojis of rockets to the moon. And there's a certain degree of irresponsibility YOLO about the way in which these people invest. So do you think that was ever really a fair stereotype of that kind of class of investors? And to the extent to which it ever was, are you seeing movement away from that now? Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant question.
1: So I think we need to take a step back and look at the overall context. So where this kind of term really originated was in the depths of the pandemic, right? Where we had this almighty shutdown of the global economy, markets really looked pretty precarious again, uh, um, you know, at certain times where we thought, okay, well, how are we going to get out of this? Then came the flood of liquidity, the flood of fiscal stimulus. It was a really weird time. I think we can all admit that where we're all lo- locked away There was stimulus checks in the US, there was, you know, um, lots of uh, support, business support in the UK and across the world, really. And what really the context of this was, was there was a huge amount of liquidity sloshing around the system. And individuals that were locked away and were potentially using betting sites outside of the COVID pandemic really took aim at this whole uh, kind of trading space, right? So I think it's a completely fair assumption that they were trading meme stocks. They were irresponsible. Some made a lot of money. Some lost a lot of money. But I think that was a unique time that we've seen, you know, elements of at the start of this year, but nowhere near to the extent. Uh, And I think the, the meme stock kind of narrative is lazy at this point. So... During that pandemic period, there was a lot of trading and speculative kind of action. That was a function of the central bank and government stimulus. Now what we're seeing is a real realisation that we're in a different time in the economy, in the economic cycle, in markets. And I think those that had got burnt have maybe stayed out of the markets. But those that had a little bit of a loss or a little bit of an experiment really thought, okay, now it's time to to level up, educate myself. Um, and we're really seeing a huge appetite for that education. And that, again, feeds into to social media, right? There's Reddit, which was obviously famous at the time. But now it's kind of maturing into FinTwit, into LinkedIn, where people are having really Uh, productive conversations about where they're going to put their money and of course we do a lot of work uh, at Finimize, and we have a you know a million strong retail investing community that we survey on a quarterly basis and what we found from our previous survey in Q4 was that there was a real kind of air of sophistication I would say so this meant sticking to S&P ETFs and trackers, standing by maybe big tech and those kind of more familiar names and looking through somewhat of a bearish forecast on the institutional side for the economy in the first half of the year, which obviously proved, well, let's say the markets proved to be, you know, uh, a bit stronger, a bit more resilient looking through that recession. And 85% of our uh, retail community that we interviewed had never even invested in a meme stock, right? So I think there's definitely different layers to that sophistication. But definitely what we see from our community, who are, of course, actively engaged in consuming institutional-grade content through Finimize, um, but are making smarter decisions with their money uh, and investments.
2: So one of the differences I've noticed between institutional and retail investors, at least at a very high level, is the retail investors seem to be, at the moment, a fair bit more optimistic, bullish about markets and the economy, institutional investors, more bearish. So I guess I'm wondering, do you think that that reflects something structural about the differences between the two, perhaps to do with incentives or risk budget institutions, maybe even the kind of people Uh, become institutional investors? Or do you think it's just a contingent fact of the world right now that it happens that these two groups are seeing it different, but they could at some other time be perfectly aligned on their views?
1: Yeah, I think retail investors generally do not have to succumb to the pressures of a professional investment job, right? So they obviously have different incentive schemes, they have different pressures they have or, or lack of they don't have risk managers they don't have targets they don't have a benchmark to outperform they don't have to you know really comply to asset allocation rebalancing re- regulation compliance all these different things that you guys have to stick to and professional money managers have to stick to it's also about the time frame i think obviously professional managers have a benchmark to to try and outperform right with retail uh, and general investors they have their whole life to really make up this investment. And I think most people realize that generally investing for the long term is a good thing to do. So there is a bit of a mismatch there of of time frame. And I think particularly what we saw in our kind of survey data, retail investors can afford to get things wrong in the short term to then outperform in the long term by just sticking with their investments. Of course, they're potentially a lot more uh, psychologically um, inexperienced in, in the trading and investing. So they don't always stick to that kind of, you know, sticking with your investment, staying uh, diversified, staying invested, etc. But they do have that longer time frame to kind of stick to.
2: We've been circling around this Silicon Valley Bank SVB issue for a bit now. So we might as well address it head on and I know it's a very fast moving situation and I suspect rather like the French Revolution it's too early to tell what its full impacts are going to be but I was wondering you know what are you seeing in your community about how people are responding to this and perhaps more interestingly is there anything that we can learn about the way that this crisis played out and the way people have been talking about this crisis what that says about the new investment information ecosystem that you work in?
1: Yeah, I think that's a a really good question and I've got some good insights I think to to share with you. So this was really a unique few days um in the sense of it all, you know, as bank uh kind of collapses tend to do, happened on a Friday, so they've got 48 hours to sort sort it out basically. But the social media kind of sphere was alight, right? And it's not what you think. It yes, it was retail investors But there were some pretty famous uh, hedge fund managers, venture capitalists, that were spreading the panic about what this could mean for the US economy, the banking system, what the Fed should do, what the government should do. And because Silicon Valley Bank, as you guys well know, was a very, uh, let's say, niche bank in the sense of it had a huge amount of exposure to technology, healthcare. I think it funded around 50% um, of that kind of whole ecosystem and there was a huge amount of pressure from silicon valley players for central banks uh, etc to do something but what was really interesting was how quickly this information disseminated across social media so there was a, there was almost an amplification effect of social media that central banks institutions policymakers i think really need to take a good note of and what we need to do here is look at prior crises, like the two thousand and eight financial crisis, where the conditions were different. Right? There was bank runs, Northern Rock, etc. But depositors had to go to the bank, queue up, you know, get their money out manually, and there were it was a bit of a maybe old fashioned way. There was social media, but not at the extent uh, or sophistication that there is now. What that means mechanically is that the pull of deposits or the sucking sound of deposits is much slower, right, and potentially more manageable. What we had now was, I think, 72 billion worth of deposits pulled out on Friday alone. And the ease of deposits, you'd log in, you'd pull it out, rumors and whispers um, from reputable people that made a lot of people concerned. And, you know, why run the risk, right? Just pull your money out, Jobs are good, and you can move it into a another bank. Um, so central banks and policymakers really saw the speed at which this information travelled, and that sent shockwaves, right? Even rattling financial institutions all over the world, as we saw that kind of spread of contagion kind of happening. So I think people need to take note of the conditions that we're in now and the technology that's available. That this is, you know, a slightly different thing. And if we see future kind of crises and uh, credit events and things like that, um, market uh, players really need to take note of how quickly things can unravel, um, especially when there's experienced people shouting from the rooftops with huge followings. So to give you a little bit of an example on a super kind of small scale from myself, I had 5 million views on my posts just over the last three days that's five million people that see what i'm writing on social media um you know and consuming it and potentially uh you know a, a reacting to it you know they're ingesting this information and maybe taking note of what i've just said there's a huge amount of responsibility there for me to put out you know clear analysis actionable not spread fear But I think there's an opportunity. Uh, And what I mean by this is it's really a responsibility, I think, now of people in the markets, in these institutions that do have experience uh, and the education and uh, the analysis and the tools available to come out uh, and educate and shout from the rooftops about what they're seeing, um, which I did see over the weekend for sure. But I think it's a great opportunity for people like us at Finamize that have institutional analysts that have experienced prior crises you know we've got a um, a hedge fund manager that lived through the last two crises we've got a portfolio manager that you know was investing through 2008 to come out and say okay be calm you know you don't have to rush into an investment decision you can take your time see how this develops because the truth is No one really knows how this is all going to pan out, and no one knew over the weekend. Right. And I think retail investors and people think that institutional guys and girls have this, you know, crystal ball. I think you guys know we don't. We're just trying to process, you know, this information as it's coming out. So there's a lot of kind of uh, myth busting, I think, for the retail investing community, but also a great educational opportunity for people with an audience or with experience to come out. Uh, and set the record straight uh, and provide calm. I think to the to the markets.
0: Yeah, I think that is a, a great insight, Teddy. The way that bank runs develop, you know, there's a common feature of them that goes back hundreds of years. Panic spreads, but if the the speed at which panic can spread or the way that it can be amplified is is um, exaggerated by technology, you know, that's an important new aspect. On, on the topic of technology then, Eddie. So a topic you post a lot about is AI, chat GPT, innovations that we're seeing in these incredible innovations in the sophistication of chatbots and the interaction you can have with these large language models. Now, maybe this question is sort of obvious, but tell us why you think this technology is so revolutionary in an investment context specifically
1: yeah i think it's really important to first start that this technology is new this generative ai is learning it's you know chat gpt 3 or 3.5 is out now this will get better and it's been well covered by the media there's a lot of bugs with it the information that it is not necessarily correct you know some of the time there's political bias in there Um, it lacks that context that experience that uh, critical thinking that analysts and you know investors uh, in the in the institutional sense have but what it does is provides a great tool or some great tools for everyday people to speed up this research process. So we've just been talking a huge amount about social media and how it's potentially democratizing that investment research kind of process, you know, availability, you know, allowing people to have it, you know, in their feeds. What AI does for the retail investing community, I think and everyday people is it provides them with tools information gathering techniques potentially as it develops um, access to real-time financial data um, so in the institutional sense you'll have a fact set you'll have a Bloomberg you'll have an S&P capital IQ where you're pulling data you're building financial models you're pulling credit ratings you're pulling holdings etc uh, and building out you know your multi-tab financial models it costs a lot of money um these these subscriptions uh, potentially for uh, you know an institution it can cost in the millions what this chat GPT uh, and AI kind of revolution is is really doing is leveling the playing field that we will get to the point where all of this information I believe will be just a click away or a query away to the average person, and what this will allow is them to start to educate themselves, dive into the financial data um, that was only previously potentially available to professional money managers, investors, analysts, etc. And start to really critically think and analyse about the numbers that are in front of them. So if it's Apple or Microsoft, rather than just going, oh, okay, the share price has dropped 20%, there's an article on CNBC that says now is a great time to maybe buy it, what happens when the retail investor can read an insight on Finimize and then do some further learning through ChatGPT, give it some sensible prompts or data kind of queries to pull, build their own financial model, you know, pull their own comps, you know, produce their own DCF, et cetera, um, and come to their own investment conclusion. I think that's a wonderfully powerful thing. That's going to democratize at least the financial analysis and research process. That's going to provide a great opportunity um, for retail investors to level up, just as they have with this this information uh, spreading uh, that's you know happened o- over social media.
0: Yeah, as part of the research for for this episode, Luke and I asked Chat GPT what it could do, what its investment use cases were, and it, it told us it could do sentiment analysis, market research customer service, risk management, and predictive analytics. And you know, we spent a good chunk of last year building a natural language processing model to read Fed communications and then tell us how hawkish dovish this were. Now if Chat GPT can do that in minutes rather than weeks of work, it really is um putting a lot of power into into the hands of investors.
1: Right. And I think that There's going to be new use cases, right? So it may be sentiment analysis now. It may be Fed minutes that they're kind of the natural language processing. It may be mentions on social media of a particular ticker. There's so many things that we've seen in just a short period of time. And this technology is in its infancy and it's moved so quickly. But imagine where we'll be even by the end of this year. Um, You know, there's there's more developments. ChatGPT4 is coming out what was really interesting last week is we heard that citadel is even using it um is is uh, basically negotiating with microsoft uh, uh, OpenAI ai for a for an enterprise wide license right and this is not necessarily just for for trading it's for troubleshooting code it's for every other business practice so it's all about in my mind it's about leverage you can do more with less essentially. So if you've got an analyst, you've got a, you know, um, a software engineer that's building these kind of uh, quantitative models, if they can do more with less by having a co-pilot that allows them to build, you know, alongside them, it's scary how quickly this could move by the end of this year, you know, judging by the first quarter, what about by the end of next year? What about in five years time? You know, the the whole landscape is going to look really, really different.
0: Eddie Dumez, thank you for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Paul. See you next time. And thank you to you for listening to Macrobytes. As ever, please like and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Next time, we'll be talking about the, the UK economy, challenges it's facing, what policymakers can do about them. But in the meantime, goodbye and good luck out there.
2: This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes
1: only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may it back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.